Welcome to Not The Way I Planned. I'm Carly Cash, and if you've ever found yourself thinking, this is not the way I thought my life would turn out, you've come to the right place. Each week we'll have inspiring interviews, plus tips and tricks to living your best life, even if it's not the life you planned. My guest today is Molly Bice Jackson. She is an amazing public speaker. She's an actress, a choreographer, a dancer, and probably most importantly, a mama to three. So Molly, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. You know, Molly, I discovered you, gosh, probably a little over 10 years ago online. And I don't even know how I came across your blog, but I did. And I was so touched by your story. And I remember I have this funny little story of seeing you in Ikea one day and I was with my mom and I was like freaking out as if you were a celebrity. (laughs) And I was like, mom, this girl, I follow her online and she's right there. And I just thought you were so cute. And I was too nervous to approach you and tell you that I read your blog and I secretly stalked you online, but, uh, (laughs) I'm excited to be talking to you today. (laughs) (laughs) I love when people come up to me in public and say something and they're always so nervous or embarrassed. And I'm like, no, thank you. And they hug me and sometimes they cry with me and then they apologize. And it's, it's the, it's a great gift. So next time, Next time I'll approach you. (laughs) (laughs) One question that I like to ask my guests is when you were growing up, what were your hopes and dreams? How did you think life was going to look as an adult? Mm. I love that you asked me that. I 100% wanted to be on Broadway. That was my main goal. Yeah. And dream. I wanted to travel the world, live in a big city, uh, I saw myself married to a fellow performer just because that was such my world and everything I wanted. And I dated a lot of them and that did not work out. <laughs> I can't tell you how many men have told me, you're the last girl I ever kissed. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, um, and to be honest, to be completely honest, I did not see children. I didn't, it was not on my radar. Really? It was not something I, yes, I did not. No. <laughs> yeah. You just wanted to not, pursue the career uh, and, and Broadway and, yeah. and living that cool life in a big city. Yeah. Yeah. And I went on an LDS mission to Illinois and I remember so clearly being in someone's house in this tiny little podunk town called Clinton, Illinois. And their little blonde girl was three and she was singing a song and I was sitting on the couch mm. and while she was singing, that was the first time in my whole life, I was 22 or something, that I was like, oh, kids. Yeah. Okay, that's a thought. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe. Okay, I see why people do this. But even then, it was not like my heart's desire. So yeah, that's something interesting about me. It is, especially, you know, not to sound stereotypical, but you grew up LDS and that's so a part of that culture that women are just supposed to get married and have babies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I I like that your thought process was a little different, you know? Yeah, for sure. So how did you end up with your husband, Vic? So I graduated from BYU in music dance theater. And 
I actually got accepted to Boston Conservatory of Music for my master's degree, but so did my ex very gay boyfriend. Again, going back to <laughs> to you being the last girl that boys would kiss. Yes, and I, there was just a lot of drama involved in that, literally. Yeah, not, no pun intended. And um, so I ended up. I decided not to go, and I got a job in Los Angeles at a performing arts academy. And moved down to L.A. And my husband, uh, Vic, Victor, he had just finished law school at Pepperdine in Malibu. And we met in a church parking lot hmm. at, a, at a, like an activity. It was a car wash in the parking lot. And, um, yeah, so that's how we ended up getting together. Yeah. <laughs> and he was not a performer. He's oh. tone deaf. He has no rhythm. <laughs> and he's the exact opposite of what I thought when I was young that I yeah. wanted. So but sometimes that's a very good he, thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly what I needed. So you ended up so, indeed having children and you had yes. a beautiful little girl named Lucy. And mm-hmm. can you tell us about Lucy? Who was she? What 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 is Lucy like? Oh, Lucy, my my husband Victor, who thinks he's Latin, actually convinced me to name her Lucia. The full, that's the full name, mm. and it means light. Uh, when I was pregnant with her, I of course had a hard time sleeping, and my husband would read out loud to me every night and we read all the Chronicles of Narnia hmm. and we just fell so in love with Queen Lucy the Valiant yeah. and her character and then we knew that it had a great meaning and so her name was was powerful and she was powerful and she had she was born with tons of blonde hair which is very rare for a, a blonde baby mm-hmm. um and it was curly, and she had these big blue eyes, and she was just feisty and very hmm. full of life. Yeah, she loved coming with me when I would teach my theater classes, and she especially loved uh, coming and watching me perform when I played Peter Pan. And she—that was really her love. Like her, her true love was Peter Pan and Captain Hook and the story. And we had so many. Peter Pan books in our house mm-hmm. and she was just our little Tinkerbell. She loved to talk about mommy fly, mommy fly. And <laughs> it was kind of magical. It yeah. Was, I think about how know, magical that must have been for her as a child thinking my mom is literally Peter Pan, you know? Yeah. It yeah. was really a special time in our life. Yeah, so life was really so, good at that point, it seems. Pretty good. You know, it was, I had a really bad postpartum depression. Mm. Um, and I wasn't planning on becoming pregnant when I had her. Okay. We'd only been married a short while and we had some major financial stress, but we were, we were making it. And by the time that I I was in that role of Peter Pan, she was about 18. It was between like 18 and 22 months of her life. And that is when things were, you're right. That is when things were finally clicking. Like I was finally over my postpartum. Yeah. And we were in a better groove. And so, yes, 
it it had been a journey up to that point, but we were... Things were kind of settling into place. Right. Yeah. And then one Sunday, everything changed. Yes. You just wake up one morning and get dressed and think, let's go live our life. And then some dramatic things can happen, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know or have experienced. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's, it, I think all the time about how all of us wake up every morning and, and most of the time you do think like, oh, it's going to be a great day or it's going to be a normal day. Maybe it's going to be a, a boring day or you have to go to work or you have these things that you have to do. But right. you never, ever wake up thinking that something tragic is going to happen. So right. take us through that Sunday a little bit. What happened so, you know, we actually had been up late the night before at a wedding for um, a young lady in our in our congregation, and that was kind of neat and special because that was the last night. It was like our whole ward family and friends got to see her, mm-hmm. and she was wearing this traditional Thai outfit my sister had brought back from Thailand, and so she was getting all this attention mm-hmm. and. Um, looking back, I'm like, that was such a, a goodbye gift that she got to be there at the wedding and she was dancing. And so the next day when we got to church, she was, she was a little tired and it was a very packed meeting. We were getting a new bishop. So there was all these stake people there. And anyway, it was just a very crowded room and she was being very fussy and disrupting the meeting. So I had to take her out to the foyer and I was trying to console her and distract her and offer her these little crackers. And she was just extremely upset. And to be honest, I was getting frustrated. I mean, I was like losing my cool. I was like throwing my hands up and just kind of walking down the hallway, like get away from me, you screaming child. You know, I just could (laughs) not, it was, it was hard. And One of those moments when being a parent is not so fun and you're lost with what to do. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, who knows? Looking back, we kind of told ourselves she knew something was going to happen. She kept my husband came out and picked her up and she just kept putting his head, her head on his shoulder, kind of looking out in the parking lot. And then she would cry and then she, I mean, she was acting just strange, but. Regardless, uh, we eventually left the meeting and I buckled her in her car seat and she was starting to calm down a little and taking those deep breaths that kids do after they cry, like, ah, you know, just yeah. trying to settle down. And I thought maybe if I give her these apples that I had cut up, you know, she's probably hungry. She needs a distraction. She had a full set of teeth, eaten apples many times before. And so I just turned around and handed her this little Tupperware full of apples. And I was about to start the car and pull away to drive home. And I could hear her choking, like really uh, gasping for air. Mm. And I could tell right away, like, this is, this is serious. This is not just. It's not something that's just going to go down in a second. Right, right. It was alarming. It was very alarming. So I raced out of the car. I unbuckled her from her car seat and I yelled for my husband who was walking across the parking lot and 
he just calmly ran over. He's like, it's going to be fine. Don't, don't oh. freak out. And he started doing the Heimlich. And he was hitting pretty hard, and it was not coming out. And the look on her face it haunted, haunted me for a long, long time. Just, Mom, you know, what's happening? Help me. She was scared and just yeah. pleading in her eyes. And I knew immediately that this was a serious situation. So I started screaming for help, and my husband ran with her next door to our church. It happens to be a fire station, just divided by this uh, fence. And so he raced with her over there, and he draped her over his arm, hoping that the jostling would loosen the apple piece. Yeah. That actually happened to his little brother when they were kids. And, you know, it came out. And so it's, I actually saw Lucy go limp in oh. his arms, and I, oh. I just, I lost it. Yeah. So eventually people started realizing something was happening, and they raced out of the church building, and people were lined up against the chain link fence, and we had uh, a couple of doctors and nurses, and we had the head of the Summit County Search and Rescue was there. And they, people were asking if anyone had a pocket knife because they took, they wanted to do a trach. Wow. And just, it was kind of mass chaos. And I started to go into shock. So I, all the blood started rushing away from my limbs and I was tingling and I just laid down on the cement and I was just praying with all my heart. I was, I was bargaining Yes. God, I'm like, I will do anything. I'm sorry. I will. I, I just thought, oh, what can I do? What can I offer as a sacrifice of my life or my behavior in exchange for my daughter to not mm. be in the situation? It was, mm. it was awful, unspeakable, and intense. And so eventually. Mm. The paramedics arrived. They weren't at the fire station. They were, it was locked. Oh. My husband just kept banging and banging, and he banged so hard that his hand and his forearm, like for weeks, was just bruised and sore. Mm. And so they did arrive, and they pushed the apple piece into one of her lungs with this little intubator thing. And then a life flight helicopter landed, and they just took her away. And I just, I, in, in a moment, just in the blink of an eye, my world just changed. Did you have any hope at that point so, when they arrived and they did that? Yes, I was still so out of it. I didn't know what to think, what to hope for. But when we did arrive, when we drove down the canyon to Primary Children's, and they had to actually take me in in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk and I was just so yeah. distraught. That is when I saw a doctor in the hallway as soon as they wheeled me in and I just said, is she alive? Is she alive? And he, he just kind of looked at me and nodded his head, yes. And I stood up out of the wheelchair and I just hugged him. And he kind of stood there awkwardly. And I, you know, he, he knew Looking back, I'm like, oh, he knew, he knew 
that she'd gone without oxygen for so long and that the brain damage was going to be too severe. But so that at that point, we did have hope yeah. because we thought, okay, she made she's it alive. Hospital. She's still technically alive. Right. And right. I, in my mind, I thought if they can just get in and take that apple piece out, then she'll live. Yeah. Because that's what's blocking. That's what's the problem. But then it's going to be gone. Right. And then she can breathe. <sighs> not realizing, you know, how long it had been obstructing her airway. So, And time is just so, oh so precious with something like that, that you hear oh about God. how quickly paramedics arrive. and But when someone is choking and they're without air, I mean, two minutes is too long, you know? Right. Yeah. And you do hear miraculous stories of children in pools or other things, but... It was not the case with us, and so it was a very grueling, grueling, sacred four days at the hospital, and I truly, my soul, my brain, my chemistry was completely changed and altered, and I became a new, a new creature, so yeah. to speak. It was very painful, but been a, a beautiful, very intense schooling in in life and love and loss and hope. So, it's so she, you spent four days there with her in the mm-hmm. hospital. And was there any hope during those four days, or why did it that take place over four days? So. They wanted to kind of get her stabilized for a while before they went in and removed the apple piece. Yeah. Just kind of let the trauma of her body settle a little. So that took a little time. I think maybe they did the surgery about 10 hours after she arrived or so. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. Um, They brought the apple piece in in a little jar, and it was like the size of my pinky nail. Um. Of course, by that point, apples disintegrate. So I don't know what the original chunk, right. how large right. it was. It wasn't that big, but I had cut them very thin. So anyway, it took some time for that to happen. And then they did some MRIs. They wanted to see if there was any brain activity. Um, you know, so they, and they put like a cooling blanket on her. And so it was, you know, it wasn't just like, well, let's give up. Let's. Yeah, they, they were had, trying. They wanted to do some testing, right? So, oh, I just love medical professionals. I'm so grateful for what they do, and yeah, they were incredible there. Yeah, um, I mean, it sounds like they did everything never... they they possibly could. Did you feel like that? Oh like, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's one story I've never told on a podcast and I've been interviewed quite a bit and I, I don't know why I don't tell it. I've only told it like one other time um, in a speech, but just thinking of those four days and, and when you mentioned, you know, them doing everything they could, I feel prompted to tell it. But when I walked in and finally got to see Lucy for the first time since the accident and since her lifelike, I walked in and my husband had already been with her for a few hours. I wasn't ready to go in yet. So when I walked in and he's stroking her head and 
he calls me over. He's like, come here, Molly, you know, come, come sit down. And he kept calling me by name and then he would say things about Lucy and he kept saying, Molly, Lucy, this, Molly, that, Lucy, this. And the nurse was just standing in the corner and kind of watching us. And finally she said, I'm sorry, but I have to tell you when your daughter was brought in, you know, she didn't have a name. She's just, when they, when they life flight these people in an emergency, they're just given a name like Coyote 214X. Oh, or okay. Yeah. And she said, so I didn't know what her name was, but I kept looking and thinking, oh my gosh, I know this little girl. I just feel like I know her. <sighs> and then eventually we found out her name was Lucy. And she said, I have a daughter named Lucy. Oh, and wow. And she said, well, she said, she said, actually, her name is Lucia. Oh. But we call her Lucy. Oh. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's her name. And then she said, and I hadn't met you, you know, the mom yet. But when you walked in and your husband kept calling you by name, I didn't know if he was talking to you or to me because my name's Molly. Wow. And I have to say, I am a, I'm a, my love language is words. I'm a verbal yeah. person. I'm a writer. I'm a performer. I express myself. I love speaking. And that is my love language. And God has always spoken to me through words and through people, mm-hmm. through actual names. And we asked Molly the day that we had to say goodbye to Lucy and the, the day she became an organ donor, we asked her to please like stand in the corner of the room as proxy for me because I couldn't oh. be in there. Oh. And I know, and years later I spoke at an organ donation um, conference for medical professionals. And I told my story and I talked about the importance of bedside manner and connecting with your patients. And I didn't know that she was in the audience Mm. that day. And I told about how after Lucy passed away, we had another little boy and we named him Peter after Peter Pan. Yeah. And she came up to me afterward and she said, I'm Molly. I haven't seen you since. And of course, I remember your Lucy and my Lucy. And Mm. she said, I have to tell you, my husband's name is Peter. Oh, my God. And. Wow. So, right. And every year on Lucy's birthday or our anniversary, we go out to eat and we Mm. go out to dinner or we go on a trip and we fly somewhere. And our flight attendants and our uh, waiters they all you know, they have their little name tags on and their names have been, there's always been a Lucy hmm. Gosh, somewhere, someday, you know, it, it's just been, anyway. So yeah. that's how I landed as the years evolved and I got asked to share my story and speak and I wanted it to be a universal theme that can, everyone can relate to and, and whether they lost a child or been through something that traumatic, I've wanted it to be a message of, about connection and mm-hmm. how we're all connected. And yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I just threw that story in there. I felt like telling it. No, I, I love that. But, and I, I, I just, yeah. it's like these little reminders that she's still yes. here, you know, that she, yes. yeah, she's still making her presence known for sure. So you talked about how after this tragedy, you really became a different person, you know, it affected your life that dramatically. How would you say the grief process was for you? What were some things that worked or didn't work? Mm. Well, I, like you said, I had my blog. Yeah. 
And there is, it takes so much work. Grief is work. Mm -hmm. It requires work. And people who are not willing to work through the grief will self-destruct. And I had those moments for sure, but I worked through it a lot through writing and just trying to process and just trying to share and understand and make sense of it. And I needed, I needed to be heard. I, I just, I needed to be heard because my pain was so, it was so much bigger than me. And it's, I felt like I was drowning and I just needed to yell and have people see me. Yeah. And I feel like through your words too, you also have allowed Lucy to be heard. You know, it's like you've continued to give her a voice as well. That's right. I love that thought. So that worked well for me. And that is, again, how I connected with people. People reached out. People, I mean, you know, you you learn that everybody has loss and everybody suffers and everybody will one day die or, you know, I mean, it just, I was only 20, how old was I? 30, 31. I mean, I was so young to have this. Tremendous loss. We'd only been married four years. So it was pretty ugly. I mean, my husband's grieving. I'm grieving. How did that affect the two of you together? Because I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I've heard statistics where it's like when you lose a child and because you're grieving usually so differently, it's like it's going to make you or break you. And luckily, you guys have made it. But that had to have been really tough. Extremely we had some really dark years, some really scary years. I became, I became pretty um, emotionally intimate with another man that mm-hmm. supported me through it and was a godsend in a lot of ways, but also um, a little dangerous at yeah. times. Yeah, but um, I think it's tough when, you know, you may, maybe Vic couldn't be there for you in the way that you needed because he was grieving himself, you know? Yeah, it brought up, a, it brings up a lot of questions about what's appropriate or what, you know. Yeah. I mean, that could be a whole other thing. And my husband doesn't really like me talking about it, which sure. I understand. And there's other people involved. But um, so... Yes, we both went to therapy. We went to therapy together. We, oh, it's been a long road. Yeah, for sure. Um, you finally got to a point, though, so, where you said, okay, let's have more kids. Was that a difficult choice after a loss like that? You know, it was interesting. Somebody asked me this a few weeks ago on the podcast, and I don't know if you if you heard it, but it was a very much, it was part like, I surrender. I just clearly, I'm not in charge of my life. Mm-hmm. God's going to do whatever the hell he wants. I mean, you know, partly it was just like, <laughs> it was just a screw you in a way, you know, part of me was just like, fine, God, you want to just play, play chess with my life. What's the next yep. move? Just do whatever you want. But it was also part the other side of the coin of surrender, which was, peaceful surrender and acceptance and just like, okay, I'm just going to have faith and there's a plan. And, you know, so it was, it was a combination of that, of just like, I throw my hands up and let's just see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And we had, we had actually been barely, barely 
starting to talk about and think about having another child before Lucy passed away, but I wasn't quite, quite ready. So when she did pass away, it was like, okay, let's, let's just do this. If it's meant to be, it will be. And God's going to do whatever he wants. So whatever. (laughs) So that's kind of, that's kind of what happened. Yeah. And, and I did get pregnant pretty soon. And in fact, I don't know, six or seven weeks later. Wow. Which that had to have been. Right. Just uh, a lot of emotion, you know, having so much loss and then this new life inside you. And new hormones. And new hormones. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Hot mess. But by the one year anniversary of her death, we had a new, a new infant in our arms, which was very sweet and tender. Sure. But I, I was a hot mess for a long, long time. And when Peter was about three days old, I was, and we were just home from the hospital and I was laying in bed. He was right next to me. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm just not going to sleep for a couple years <laughs> because I can't, I'm just going to have to watch him like a hawk because now I know that the worst that you fear can, can and will happen. Right. So I will just hold vigil until he's five or yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, I can imagine you'd you be very overprotective because you're just so scared right. knowing that those things don't just happen to other people, they can happen to you. That's exactly right. So I walked into the guest, guest room where my husband was trying to get sleep, you know, away from the newborn because he had to go to work. And I walk in there and I'm like, honey, I, I can't, I, I guess I'm just going to watch him all night and what if he dies? And yeah, he looked at me and he said, honey, if God's going to take him, he's going to take him. You need to get some sleep. Just go. And he kind of said it like, I can't deal with you right now. Just <laughs> go to sleep. But for some reason, it didn't bother me. It just, it something clicked in me. And I was like, you're right. And I know it sounds dramatic, but that was a huge shifting point for me. And I just thought, okay, yeah. I'm exhausted. I'm doing my best. And I have to sleep. And if it's in, if it's the plan that he's supposed to die, then he will. And yeah, and he's absolutely right. And it's funny how little moments like that can make such a huge shift in your thinking and in your life. Because I, yeah. I, sounds, I think a lot of us are control freaks to some degree. You know, you want to feel like oh, you're yeah. in control of your life. And he's right. I mean, freak things like hap- that happen to you they happen in this crazy world that we live in and all we can do is our best and, and, you know, try to be present right. and, and love the people that we love as, as well as we can. And, you know, and then it's, how do we deal when those horrible things happen? How do we press forward and how do we, I don't know, make some sort of sense right. out of it all, you know? Yeah. And I mean, we all have to come to that point. Of we do. In life. Do. I mean, everyone yep. with our aging parents, with our teenagers, with our marriage, with your divorce, you know, and so it's not just something I had to do. I mean, we all, that's the goal really for all of us. And yep. I kid you not from that day forward, I essentially was just, I was free. I just, hmm. once you go through the worst thing a parent can imagine, you, there's a sense of freedom, like, okay, 
Yeah. I survived that. I can survive anything. And yeah. Yeah. And I think just so, that surrendering to God, it's funny how I've always felt like, no, I want to, I want to be in charge of this whole deal. And that is actually something that can almost hold you hostage. Yeah. And when you just let it go and yeah. say, you know what, God, I, this is not my doing. Like I, I am not in charge. You're in charge and I have to trust in you. And I'm just yep. going to do the best I can to endure it all, you know? Right. So yeah. that, so we had Peter and then, uh, so all my kids are three years apart. So mm-hmm. we had Lucy and then when she would have turned right before she would have turned three is when we had Peter. And then three years later we had Zoe and Zoe was due on Lucy's birthday. Oh, but I know she came a few days early. Uh, so she's June 5th and so, or Lucy's June 11th. And so, uh, Zoe's middle name is June. So Zoe, June, they both share that. Mm-hmm. And that was, we were scared to have another girl, but they look, and they look a lot alike, but, uh, Lucy had blonde curly hair and Zoe has red curly hair. Yeah. And they are just beautiful girls (laughs) and we talk about Lucy all the time she's part of our family she's part of our story my kids go to the cemetery they meet other families who've lost children and loss and the language of loss and um, vulnerability it's a huge part of my children's life and I it's such a gift yeah to them to grow up knowing like people suffer these things happen life is hard we help one another and there are days I just feel so, uh, there's a quote that said by Neil A. Maxwell that says, he said, the cavity carved by pain can one day become our receptacle for joy. Mm. And there are days that my, my cavity was carved so deep that on the days when my children are happy and we're enjoying beautiful park city where we live or we're skiing or Chris, whatever it is, there are times that I just feel so grateful and overflowing and like, this is exactly what was meant to be. This is exactly how I was supposed to use my talents and my gifts. And our life has been so blessed and so rich and the connections we've made. And I mean, it's just beyond what I could have pictured, but then there are days (laughs) (laughs) where the opposite is true that I just think, why is our life been so hard? Why is our big sister not here? Why do I have to live with this PTSD? And, and what would it be like to go through life having not lost a child? I just can't comprehend that sort of wholeness. And just, I just, it's beyond what I, I, that people get to live that way. Right. You know, so it's, it's, it's up and down, but it's, I love, though, I love that, you know, your kids, like you said, they get to learn that life is not just sunshine and roses. And I think so many times as parents, I know I was certainly this way when I had my kids, I wanted to just give them the perfect life and I didn't want them to suffer and I didn't want them to know about the bad things of the world. And then I just had this kind of eye-opening thought that, you know what, that's not giving them all I can give them, teaching them that life is not perfect and, and teaching them that they can get through hard things and become resilient is, 
is great. And it's one of the beauties in life when we go through hard things and and then we have those great moments of joy again. I think that those moments of joy are that much richer because we have felt yes. the depths of sorrow that we've felt, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that you've you've gone yeah. on to share your message through so many different ways. Um, and you've really had some big projects going on lately. What what have you been working on? What are you doing? Oh, I've got a couple things. So I, I, I'm a life coach. So I have, uh, pri- you know, private one-on-one coaching sessions with clients that I really love. I, I try to speak as often as I can, whoever will hire me. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got an event in Florida later this month. I'm speaking in Park City in March, like at a women's snowshoe retreat. I'm going to Canada in the fall to speak. Um, but in the meantime, I'm also working on a book that's the same name as my keynote speech, which is The Commodity of Connection. That is about how authentic connection with others is our most valuable commodity, that it just holds so much value and leads to all of our desired outcomes in life and in business when we truly connect with others. Yeah, I love that because I feel like we live in such a world of comparison right now that we got to get rid of that and start just connecting. And I think that people that we think we could never connect to, if you start digging, you really, truly can. Oh, yes. Absolutely. It's so beautiful when that happens. So I've got that going on. And then uh, a good friend of mine uh, and a fellow life coach and speaker, her name's Kelly Wolf. She lives here in Park City. Um, she was on the real world back in the day. Real world, New Orleans. I <laughs> and her is, um, tot- this is like I'm having a uh-huh moment in my brain now that you say that because I've seen her on your Instagram <laughs> and uh, her husband is Scott Wolf, right? Yes, actor Scott yes, Wolf. Actor. But but all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, yes she was, yes she was on the real world. <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. So she, yeah. So I do a lot of projects with her, but she and I have our own little TV show too. We we have two uh, segments that have come out. It's called the Coaching Corner. Um, it's actually through a, a show in Los Angeles called Beyond the Carlos and Lisa show mm-hmm. um, beyond TV, but KSL just picked it up too. Very cool. So yeah. So it's currently viewable just through the KSL app online, um, not on television. So I've got the coaching corner. I've got my coaching clients and then I've got my keynote speeches and my book. So those are my, those are my projects. Yeah. I've got to ask you, and, what is this? The positive pants dance stuff. Oh, <laughs> yes. So positive pants dance. So that is a weekly dance party I do on my Instagram. Um, and it's part of my book and part of my keynote speech. And it's part of uh, one of the tools I teach about how to create connection, which is don't try to prove yourself, just try to be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's how we I love really that. connect. So um, yeah, so it, the way it evolved is I was dancing in my kitchen like a fool. I'm I'm really quite goofy and um irreverent and silly and I was so I was dancing in my kitchen one day and then I posted it to Instagram 
And I got a message from a friend. Her name is Janique. She's this beautiful Jamaican goddess. <laughs> I used mm-hmm. to perform with her in college. So <laughs> Janique messages me and she's like, Molly, you are so dumb. We are watching you dance and we're laughing and we love it, me and my kids. And I'm like, oh, really? I'm so glad that my stupidness can bring you joy. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do another dance and I'm going to tag Janique and kind of dedicate it to her and her kids. So I did that and she wrote me back again and she said, oh, they love it. They feel so special. Thanks for, you know, bringing us together on the couch so we can watch you and laugh. Yeah. And it gave me this idea, like, you know, as a performer, I'm like, I've got this free platform for all the world to see. I used to make home videos and TV shows when I was a kid, and I did a radio show called Happy News. And Hmm. I thought, okay, if I'm going to have this free platform and can be my goofy self and make people laugh, I'm going to run with it. Yeah. So I had the idea. I thought, okay, I'm going to ask all my followers to tell me something positive that happened in their week, and then I'm going to do... Uh, just be so silly and do a dance for them and tag them and dedicate it to them and celebrate the positive thing that happened. So that's how positive pants dance was born. (laughs) I love it. And I love, I mean, everyone knows if you are having a terrible day and you turn on some music and you start dancing, you can't help but have that lift your spirits you know it just oh yeah it just instantly makes you feel better so I think it's pretty cool it's so fun to see like so and so got to go on an outing with her niece and this other person you know their child finally figured out how to use the toilet instead of their diapers and Mm -hmm. it's just fun like you just read all these fun things that strangers are celebrating and yeah celebrating even the little wins that's cool yeah yeah Well, what would you say is your overall message to someone that faces a really big trial like you have faced in your life? What would you say to someone? Honestly, I think my most powerful tool that I teach people to connect and to heal is my very first tool that I call speak the unspeakable, that when something truly feels so heavy and unspeakable and you can't find the words to describe your grief or your pain that you have to try and that as you do so, as you share your story, even if it's just with your therapist or your bishop or your 80 year old next door neighbor, as you start to speak your unspeakable, you will, it will become outside of you. You will be able to externalize it. It will become outside of yourself and it will not be eating you up inside. Yeah. And you will be able to find resources and community. And that is truly, I think, one of the most powerful things you can do. I think I've found too so many times when I'll tell my story or talk about how I'm feeling. And I think that I'm the only one that thinks this way, or I'm the only one that's going through this. It's amazing how people are like, no, that's how I feel too. Or I've been through something similar. And that's huge. No one else knows. Yeah. Yeah. And then they feel alone. So it's a gift to yourself and it's a gift to others. And it's not like, it's not airing dirty laundry or gossiping or slandering, you know, can you believe that it's, you know, it needs to be done in an appropriate, healthy way. Right. But it, that's really what I would say above all. Yeah. That oh. when 
Yeah, we we heal when our stories are shared in safe spaces. Yeah, and so true, I, so true. Well, I just, I love your message, and I love how you have taken this horrible tragedy in your life and just kept Lucy's spirit alive in the most beautiful way. And you are really, you know, sometimes when people are taken so suddenly and so soon, I think it's really easy to say like, ah, they didn't get this life that they should have been able to live. But I think that you are just continuing to give her life so much meaning. And, you know, I, I just think what you're doing is incredible and, Oh, I, <laughs> I think she's given my life. I think Lucy's given my life so much. Meaning. Yeah. Yeah. She certainly has yeah. beautiful little girl. And if people would like to follow you, find you, uh, receive coaching from you, how can people find you? Yes, please go to my website, which is my name, Molly with a Y, uh, Molly Bice Jackson. It's B as in boy, I C E Jackson. Um, dot com and my instagram where all the fun stuff happens <laughs> is smally spice and it's small just like the size um s-m-a-l-l-y spice and i'm also on facebook not as much but i'm also molly Bice jackson on facebook so perfect well thank you so much molly and i just hope you'll continue to share your message and connect with others and I really appreciate you sharing your story today. Thank you, Carly. It was a, such a pleasure. And I can't wait to meet you at Ikea sometime. Yes, <laughs> next time I'm approaching you, I'm not going <laughs> to be too shy. <laughs> Thank you for joining this edition of Not The Way I Planned. If you liked what you heard, you can find more at notthewayiplanned.com as well as Not The Way I Planned on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.